Truth Jihad Radio is 100% crowdfunded and therefore fearless and independent. Please help us stay that way. You can subscribe at my Substack. That's kevinbarrett.substack.com. Or you could send a one-time PayPal donation to truthjihad at gmail.com. The key thing is, don't be inhaling, don't be ingesting. Stay inside, don't drink or eat anything. These are important questions. I understand that. Highest moment the last eight years. Hmm. Highest moment the last eight years. Well, I think that the most important, the most compelling was uh, was 9-11 itself. Welcome to Truth Jihad Radio. I'm Kevin Barrett, broadcasting out of Sadia, Morocco. Every week I try to bring you the most interesting guests I can find who have something interesting to say that needs to be attended to but isn't being heard in the corporate-controlled mainstream or even, in many cases, in the so-called alternative media. Tonight we have a great one-two punch of guests coming at you from, well, the west coast of the USA in the second hour. That would be Swami Beyondananda of WakeUpLaughing.com. Swami Beyondananda has been adding some much-needed levity to the 9-11 Truth Movement and other movements for truth and justice for, well, for, I guess, 40 years now. I think he started about, like, 1980 or something like that. Anyway, uh, if you haven't encountered the Swami and his nonstop uh, spouting of puns and uh, other witticisms, be sure to catch that. That's in the second hour tonight, right here on Revolution.Radio, the ultimate free speech network, which deserves your support, by the way. And then, of course, his uh, <laughs> Swami's uh, Jewish manager, Steve Behrman, will uh, then come on in the second half hour to threaten to institutionalize the Swami and medicate him forever into Zombieland if he doesn't wise up. No, actually, I just made that up. Uh, Steve is a good guy, too. Anyway, in the first hour now, we're going to get to Nick Collarstrom. He's been published on a number of subjects. He has books out on 9-11-7-7. He contributed to my Charlie Ebdo book, We Are Not Charlie Ebdo. He has a real good book out there on World War II revisionism and a new one on the just war in Ukraine. And it's not the just war that the London and New York papers tell you it is, that's for sure. So I think we do have Nick on the line now, although I think he just answered video. So he has to turn off his video camera, and then we will we will talk. So, hey, Nick, how you doing? You look good, but turn that camera oh. off. Okay, it's coming off. Wow. <laughs> okay, I just thought you'd want to see me, Kevin. I'm sorry? I just thought you'd want to see me. Yeah, no, we're, we're an audio-only show. Uh, yeah, and your, your audio is okay. Try try to be kind of careful with the microphone, though, because I heard some a little bit of scratching as though it were being bumped or, or rubbed. Oh, right. We don't want that. All yeah. right, so so Nick, how are you? Well, not so bad, I suppose. You know, jockey on. I'm 77 now, and um, uh, you know, still um, still jogging around the block and um, having a cold shower in the morning, and um. Hope I keep going a bit longer, Kevin. <laughs> and I very much, very much hope I'll come round to the States and see you and Uncle Jim again uh, sometime. 
Right. Well, it's too late to see me in the States. I, I moved to Morocco. So if you want to visit, oh, you're going to yeah. have to come wow. here. <laughs> well, that's a lovely place. So perhaps I'll come visit there. Yes, you, you should. It's actually a shorter trip. And we do have a guest room. And the Mediterranean is a five-minute walk through the park away. So it's a good place to visit. This All year-round swimming, I'm still actually jumping in that water, even though it's cold by the local people's standards, but not by uh, Wisconsin standards, at least not in Wonderful. the summer. Uh, what's the town you're in? Saidia. It's right on the Saidia. border uh, of Algeria and Morocco, uh, in all the right. northeast corner of Morocco. All right. Yeah. Okay. So it's 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 been a little while. So I think I had you on maybe last year to talk about your book on the just war in Ukraine, uh, and right. which of course was ironic that you, as a lifelong peace activist, would write a book saying that hey, this war that just broke out, this horrible war, it's actually a just war. <laughs> so right. that was an interesting one. But I actually have to kind of agree with you uh, that from the Russian mm -hmm. perspective, I mean that's a it was it's a defensive war, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah, it's a pro-democracy war. You know, the people of Ukraine of East Ukraine voted to leave Ukraine by a huge majority, and the fight now is whether you want to endorse that decision of self-determination of peoples in those Donetsk. That's right. Well, as you point out in the book, it's really a civil war, uh, and it's you know split down the middle between the Slavs in in the east and the people you call the poles or you know we, we call them the west ukrainians in the west but it didn't really have to happen and it's really in a sense it's tragic it's not it's not a just war in the sense of an inevitable war it never should have happened but the people who mostly provoked it were of course on the western side namely the united states and obviously the, U yeah. Yeah, the u.s didn't care about ukrainians at all i mean ukraine ukraine as a nation is doomed because of this war. So this is not yeah. a war to, to save Ukraine. This is a war to destroy no, totally, Ukraine. Totally, no. yeah, yeah. Right. We're, we're, heartbreaking, right? How, how soon do you think the you know decisive results will be in? Oh, I've got no idea, Kevin. I don't have a crystal ball. But um, I, mean, I think, in effect, Russia is... Well, uh, Russia doesn't have a concept of winning. You see? Russia is defending the right of these states to exist and not be bombed. That's the aim of, 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 of Russia, primary aim, I think. And so it doesn't quite have the idea of winning that people in the West keep talking about. Right. Uh, but in order to avoid being threatened and maybe even existentially threatened by, uh, by NATO combined with this rapidly anti-Russian uh, element in Ukraine that NATO has weaponized, it seems that Russia will probably have to finish the war in such a way that it, at the very minimum, controls the territory that it has now uh, with a largely demilitarized Ukraine with no NATO leanings and essentially a, a friendly yeah. Ukraine, right? They, that's yeah. what they need. What Russia always wanted was an independent, neutral Ukraine in between East and West, and that option is being taken away. So uh, what NATO in the West calls defense involves putting missiles probably U.S. control missiles, on the border of Russia, which isn't defence at all. And Russia cannot endure that. You know, it's happened now in Poland, Romania, and they want to do it in Ukraine. And that is obviously unendurable. It's intolerably provocative. Um, and that's this kind of doublespeak is why negotiation can't really happen. The West is, is, is misusing words. By, it's put by biological weapon sensors right on the 
border of Russia, dreadful, dreadful, you know, types of pathogen. And then also it's wanting to put missiles there and, uh, you know, pretending they're defensive, but obviously they aren't. And so it's very difficult for um, Russia to trust anyone. And with the total betrayal of the Minsk agreements, which European leaders signed and then explicitly stated that they had no intention of adhering to them or fulfilling them, uh, it's not at all clear who Russia could make a deal with. So it's in this difficult position, isn't it? Right, which means that it probably needs to win on the battlefield one way or another. Many people are predicting that it will likely end up, uh, the, the Russians will end up with everything east of the Dnieper River and probably the uh, the Black Sea coast as well. And then they'll have... Yeah, to, that would be quite simple, wouldn't it? Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. And then they'll need to make sure that, that the rump Ukraine is not a threat. And that would probably involve either... Uh, you know, a demilitarized friendly government in Kiev or possibly Poland and so on, you know, taking some of that territory that used yeah, to be right. yeah. Poland. Yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, this is, it's, it's a catastrophe for Ukraine as a nation. It's basically the destruction of Ukraine as a nation. It's presented in the Western media and in politics as the exact opposite of what it is, right? They claim yeah, it's to save Ukraine from Russia. You get Russia. this meaning, meaningless soundbites. Oh, we stand with Ukraine, you know, as long as it takes and uh, making Russia the enemy. And they completely delete all the past history which led up to the conflict of, of you know, eight years of shelling the Eastern European many states, of, 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 you know, the Donbass. That's what Donbass is the name for these little Eastern states. Uh, eight years that they were bombed and had landmines scattered all around them and denied electricity, water, gas. Uh, and that, that past history is just deleted from Western media accounts. And you just get a story of big bad Russia invading Ukraine for no reason, uh, aggression. And that literally is the kind of comic book story that, that NATO, uh, NATO people share and talk about. Uh, and, and that kind of makes negotiation impossible, doesn't it? That's right. It's really, it's also kind of shocking that the, the context of NATO's eastward march is completely ignored in the Western media. And can you imagine how the Americans and the Brits would feel if the Cold War had ended, uh, supposedly, you know, to leave, leave everything the way it is, you know, no more aggression, we're going to demilitarize and everything. And then yeah. uh, Russia had continued to expand the Warsaw Pact westward, and they'd gradually been swallowing up country after country until, you know, they they were on the borders of France or even maybe taking France and, you know, pointing all their missiles at London or something. I mean, obviously, yeah. the Anglosphere wouldn't be too happy about that, but they feel they have the right to do that to Russia because, hey, we, we run the world and the Russians need to know their place. Right, yeah. But it's also partly that Europe has been like the centre of culture for many centuries. And it's the place people wanted to be. You know, they think, oh, I could sit around at a European cafe and, you know, listen to the music and that would be the place to be. It's much better than where I am now. Uh, and and the EU is, is merging more and more with NATO. So being joining with NATO and the EU has seemed desirable to these East European states, as if they'd get... Um, you know, more affluence. Well, I think that time is over now. I think European affluence is is fading away and vanishing. In another year or so, it won't be there at all. It will be that the East European states that have 
maintained a more pro-Russian attitude and kept the cheap natural gas, we'll be doing much better than European countries. Uh, and and uh, uh, so I think this Eurocentric attitude that they're somehow privileged is will soon be over. Uh, and uh, uh, yeah. Well, it makes you wonder if there's some kind of death wish among the European leadership, because the, you know, the, there, of course, are, are a lot of people on these right wing parties who are doing better and better now. They just won in the Netherlands and uh, Marine yeah. Le Pen is poised to do very well in France. There's this huge surge favoring these these right wing anti immigration parties, and there, you know, been riots yeah. in Ireland and everything. And yeah. I, I'm obviously not a partisan of these right wing forces myself personally. I'm a Muslim. I relate. Well, exactly. Yeah, I relate they're, more they're, to the. They're, they're, right they're vehemently anti Muslim, and they take absolutely no notice of what the likes of us have been saying for about. 15 or 20 years, that the Muslims are not doing it. The Muslims are not doing these terror events. They're not guilty. Uh, and and uh, they're getting false blame cast upon them. Uh, and uh, these right-wing parties, uh, as as you say, that they, they, they falsely blame Muslims, and so they accept the this largely illusory image of Islamic terror uh, that, that is foisted upon them by the media. So, as you say, it's hard to be that keen on them. Uh, but... Um, but they are opposing this true flood of immigration. Yeah, right. And, and, and they have a point. They, you know, at least in Ireland, the rate of immigration is so high that the native-born Irish may be a minority as early as 2030. That's, uh, you know, I think the real honest discussion about immigration is sort of, you know, how much is too much, or how, how much is the right amount, and I think the anti-immigrant forces may have a point that in some cases. There's been too much, and so that you know, if if Ireland does become you know minority native Irish by 2030, that is a it's tantamount almost to national suicide, and so there's that aspect of it, and then there's also the fact that that Europe has chosen, as you say, to give up on cheap Russian energy yeah, and yeah. lose its industry, especially German industry, and lose its you know, economic power, its political yeah. power, and ultimately yeah. its future. So does, does Europe have a death wish? Well, it's a question of um, does it have sovereignty? Is it capable of making sovereign decisions? Could Germany make a decision in its own interest? And for me, the the archetypal image of German self-destruction is Schultz, Chancellor Schultz standing next to Joe Biden. If you remember back in January, just before the war started, and Biden was saying, oh, we're going to blow up the pipeline. If Russia invades, we, the pipeline will not be anymore. And, you know, Germany's invented, invested billions of euros in this. And Schultz just stands there literally next to him without saying a word. Uh, and it's informed that, you know, a condition... Uh, is that the pipeline's going to blow up. All they've got to do now is start the war, and they'll be able to blow up the pipeline. And that will stop the great project of German-Russian fr friendship that could have developed. And Schultz doesn't say a word. So that's an emblem of the lack of sovereignty, of, of uh, which I think without question, the huge majority of the people would have wanted. Uh, the, 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 the people aren't into this uh, American-motivated, you know, eternal war... Um, uh, philosophy, I could say American, it's, it's really Anglo-American. You, you get Britain and America and the Socialist Asians always creating these reasons for war and, and, and uh, they want this 
uh, eternal or cosmic struggle against Russia now. Russia is the big country. They thought they could break it up, thought they had access to its raw materials, and they're learning their big mistake. It's interesting that just as it's become clear to everybody that this so-called Ukrainian counteroffensive never really happened and, if anything, backfired and that Ukraine is militarily doomed, uh, just as, as that you know becomes clear and the mainstream sources are starting to admit it, suddenly we get this uh, October 7th Al-Aqsa storm uh, war uh, in Palestine. Yeah. And you know, you wrote about the just war in Ukraine, where everything we're told is the exact opposite of the truth, that the Russians yeah. are actually defending themselves against NATO aggression. Well, yeah. you know, how about the just war in Palestine? Because, you know, if, if the Russians are defending themselves against aggression, which I think they are, how about those Palestinians? My goodness. I mean, the Zionists crossed the seas in order to invade and exterminate the people of Palestine citing yeah, right, you know, correct, they, yeah. they claim they were given this land by a god that they don't believe in 3000 years ago so these are basically psychopathic uh killers in the midst of some kind of frenzy of anti-religious delusion i call it religious delusion except they don't believe in god but they do believe yeah. that god gave them palestine so now they're exterminating the people of gaza 20000 yeah. at least or yeah, probably right. a lot yeah, more well, dead well said there, Kevin. yeah i totally agree um and just to come back to the timing how good was that timing Let's go back a bit earlier, go back to sort of January of, of previous year when the war in Corona is about to start. All the, all the fuss about this, um, having the jab and the COVID nonsense, massive skepticism was developing, massive concern was developing about the jab. People beginning to realise all the people dying from it and the women who had the jab couldn't reproduce properly. Uh, and the, the massive conflict was beginning to come apart. There hadn't been that war. There had been a terrific reaction uh, at least, at least in England, I think throughout Europe, uh, are people against uh, realising the way they've been conned by their governments and taking an ancestry jab that didn't protect them against anything and probably screwed up their, you know, the future, future breeding and so on. Anyway, that war then suddenly theatrically appeared. Um, oh, yeah, we, we, we've got to fight uh, Ukraine. And it was totally predicted. And they then took measures to ensure that Russia would invade around the actually predicted date, 22-222, uh, that massive shelling of the Donbass increased about 100-fold, terrific intensive shelling, big, big build-up of the Donbass army, uh, sorry, the Ukraine army about to invade Donbass. So Russia's hand was forced. It had to do it. Otherwise, a total genocide would have been uh, completed. So that war came in at the sort of theatrically necessary moment when the whole COVID scam was becoming apparent. Right. And now, as you point out, um, embarrassing. Oh, we've just spent $100 billion on armaments for Ukraine. Everything we told you about Ukraine winning was wrong. Everything we told you about Russia breaking up was wrong. Uh, and uh, just to uh, avoid the uh, blowback of the total catastrophic failure, which follows on from the total catastrophic failure in Afghanistan, not so long ago, um, that would have been a disastrous load of news. And so instead, as you point out, we suddenly get a new war which takes away the attention. Yeah. Yeah, it, it seems like we're going from one crisis to another, you know, one mega crisis to another, where, you know, COVID was the, you know, the first time that they went 
for sort of a, a global lockdown and, you know, trying to push through all these, these new uh, social control measures of locking people up in their homes, uh, forced uh, vaccinations and so on. Uh, and then yeah. panicking the whole population of the world all at once to get all this pushed through. And then another mega crisis, the, you know, we're on the edge of nuclear world war three with, with Russia, with the Ukraine war. And now we yeah. have uh, yet another mega crisis in Palestine. And so I wonder, you know, are, are we ever going to see a period again when there's not some, you know, mega crisis boiling hot? Because as soon as one mega crisis starts to cool off a little bit, are they going to just come up with another one? Well, yeah. Um, I mean, the empire, we need to study, ponder, anyway, it's all we can do, the, 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 the hidden hand in world politics. And that really became evident with the 9-11 event. Before that, the hidden hand in world politics would have been a rather obscure and disreputable concept. But it's, it's absolutely evident. This the, the, the tremendous event of 9-11, nobody's prosecuted, nobody even lost their job uh, over the 9-11 events. Uh, and nobody admitted to it. Uh, and so the, the hidden hand in history becomes manifest. And each of the big state fabricated terror events, anyone with IQ above room temperature, can see there's hidden power doing the state fabricated terror, whereby an innocent party gets blamed. The, the, the deaths may be real. The, the, the apparent terror is real, whether it's real, whether people actually die or not. And there is a hidden force that organises it. Um, let me give you an, an example, if I may, of the blowing up of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. OK, now, 26th of September, um, a few months ago, uh, uh, the world's largest terrorist event, I suppose, since 9-11, OK? The worst event of international terrorism, perhaps ever in, in Europe, I don't know. Um, and, and a terrific, well-planned explosion blows apart this immense pipeline that costs 20 billion euros to create. Uh, and again, it's like 9-11, nobody admits to it. Nobody says it's done it. And everyone keeps quiet. And German, German officials say, oh, well, we know who did it, but um, we can't tell you. So you've got this uh, a bit like 9-11. Nobody will admit to doing it. OK, let's just look at the timing. 26th September, that's the new moon nearest the autumn equinox. And it's the Jewish New Year. That's the first thing to say. OK, second thing to say is two people, Victor Kagan um, uh, and um, Victor Kagan was, was involved in the um, 2014 Maiden uh, revolution, the, the, the coup. And uh, so it's, it's Victoria Newland's husband. OK, so those two had a very central role in getting that um, getting that whole event going, whereby the, the elected prime minister of Ukraine was was got rid of. And the person Victoria Newland named in advance was the story instead. Uh, and that began the genocide program of of destroying Russian culture in the east, uh, passing laws making it illegitimate to speak Russian or to honour Russian culture and uh, banning anyone from speaking Russia, Russian and um, literally exterminating them, continued bombing of towns villages. OK, so it's Victor Kagan's birthday that day, 26th September. So it's like a birthday present to him. Who knows? Perhaps he pressed the button. OK, so those are, those are two time determining factors. But, Kevin, let me point out one other. Um, that third week in September was when elections were being held 
throughout the Donbass. Four little mini states, what they call Zaporizhia, Kherson, um, uh, the four little mini states, Luhansk, Donetsk, um, were holding elections and the whole of Europe absolutely banned anyone from going there or helping. Anyone would be criminalised or be tried and found guilty if they helped or assisted that election. No reporters, whatever, allowed into East Ukraine, which is an extraordinary, extraordinary phenomenon. And uh, for several days, they held elections and had a massive turnout, about 80 or 90 percent, uh, something like 90 percent of the people. And the vote was, do you want to remain in Ukraine or do you want to leave and rejoin Russia? OK, they had a massive turnout, despite uh, that there were no no fixed election booths to go to because they were just been bombed. They had to use buses and so on, move from a school to a sports stadium, whatever. So the election booths had to keep moving to avoid getting bombed. And courageously, the people came out and voted and they did vote. And there was various different, about 50 inspectors who inspected these elections. And uh, I mean, I would like to see, very much like to see a proper book published about all the details of it, because the Western media were totally dismissive of these elections. They said they were sham, they said they were illegal and didn't explain why. Um, so that is so the question from then on this whole war in ukraine is do you believe in the right of self-determination of local residents or of peoples do you believe in that right or not and they after that election the russian parliament the russian federation considered their appeal and accepted it and so they're now part of novo russia novo rus and as far as russia's done that, that's that's fine that's what people want it's what the people have got um and uh, I, I think it's not without significance that that um, pipeline was bombed just during the days of that election, totally knocking it off the headlines. And virtually nobody in Europe, as far as I can tell, even knows that those elections took place. Right. So so you mentioned the genocidal aspect of this, which involves the fact that there there's a civil war in Ukraine between the Western Ukrainians and the Slavic Russian-speaking Ukrainians in the East, and the, the former is exterminating the latter, just trying to get rid of them. They want Ukraine yeah. to be 100 percent Russian free. They want it to be all only Ukrainian speaking. And basically they, they want to just eliminate those people in their culture. So that that's that qualifies as genocide under the yeah, international yeah. law definition. Yeah. Right. And likewise, we're hearing about genocide in Palestine right now, where yeah, right. obviously you know Israel is just a euphemism for the genocide of Palestine over the past century. And now they've accelerated that genocide and they're, they're mass murdering people in ridiculous numbers at a, a really disgusting, uh, horrific speed. And, and in both cases, I noticed there's a kind of, kind of interesting aspect to this, which is that, you know, Netanyahu called the Palestinians Amalek. He said, remember what Amalek has done to you. Well, Amalek stands for enemies of the Jews or the Jewish tribe. And uh, yeah, in the yeah. Old Testament, where God yeah. uh, commands the Jews to exterminate the tribe of Amalek uh, and kill all of their men, women, children, their babies, and even their animals. And right. so Netanyahu is saying to do that to the Palestinians. But uh, you know, Amalek just refers basically to any tribe that the Jewish tribe designates as its enemy that needs to be exterminated. And the Slavs, the Christian Russian-speaking Slavs, seem to fit that bill as well. It's been much speculated that the Kagan family, which is a uh, rabid neocon Jewish family 
remembers all of the bad blood with the Russians, with all of those pogroms and the bad blood between Christian Slavs and Jews uh, yeah. over uh, centuries. And so in both cases, we see Jews organizing uh, genocide against a non-Jewish enemy that they consider Amalek, that is a tribe that needs to be exterminated. And now we have maybe half a million plus uh, young uh, people, young Christian Slavic people in the prime of life uh, dead. We have Ukraine yeah, utterly yeah, right. destroyed with what is it, something yeah. like 20 million Ukrainians gone, missing, you know, fled, yeah, fled right, the country. Yeah. So yeah. they're destroying Amalek every so so that actually you know is is kind of strange given that what we see in the media is that gen- when we hear about genocide we hear about Jews all we ever hear about is that Jews are the once and forever victims of genocide but in reality it appears that right now Jews are the perpetrators Jews are behind the genocide of Slavs in Russia and Ukraine and Jews are obviously behind the genocide of Palestinians by the Jewish state and then if we go back in history and we look at what really happened in Russia with the Bolshevik re- revolution, we yeah. might argue that the fact that, that probably 80, 90 percent of the Bolshevik leaders were Jewish mean, and that the, almost all the victims were Slavic Christian, you know, once again means yeah. that what we had yeah, is right. a Jewish yeah. genocide of a tribe yeah. that the Jews hate. So all of this uh, really raises the question of this is raised by Peter Meyer in his his book, The Cosmopolitan Empire. I'm going to talk to Peter tomorrow on False Flight Weekly News. And, and right. he, he thinks that there are sort of four different world takeover conspiracies and that some of them or actually probably all of them really have are disproportionately Jewish and that in the the sort of the Jewish messianic theme that you know Jews are at war with all of the other tribes or nations that is the goyim and that the messiah will come and create paradise on earth by leading the Jews in conquest and absolute destruction of all of the other nations of the Goyim. This, this has led to a mentality uh, amongst a certain element of the most powerful people in the Jewish communities that they glom on to, you know, whether it's communism or Zionism or what have you, uh, or, or one world is Illuminism. Uh, they glom on to these plans to create a world dictatorship that would be led by Jews by basically destroying all of the other nations. And of course the families uh, that the nations are based on. Hence, uh, according to this theory, you have disproportionately Jewish folks uh, working behind the scenes in these various institutions to undermine families and nations in order to basically destroy all the non-Jewish nations so that, you know, Israel will reign supreme, the Antichrist, I'm sorry, sorry, the Messiah will rule the world from Jerusalem. Anyway, that's, Uh, that's my rant for the evening. What do you think? Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, um, I'll avoid commenting on on the um, any Jewish aspect in Ukraine. I mean, perhaps I I, I sort of wimp out. My book, Just War, does not mention the J word because I already had three books banned by Amazon and I didn't want another one. (laughs) Well, well, just just ask who you know, ask who you're you're not allowed you know to challenge, and you know who rules you, right? Right. I, I mean, there's deep history about the ancient Rus Empire. From a thousand years ago, it started in East Ukraine with, with, with Kiev and so on, and that pushed out the old um, Khazarian Empire, which uh, had been there before. So, so uh, those two empires, uh, the Khazarian one was kind of blotted out um, for some degree by the development of Russian, what we what came to be called Russia. 
and um, I think we'll all be interested to hear a bit more about that story. Um, anyway, if I may just come on to the Israel-Palestine issue, um, <clears throat> I, th I think it's important to see how, as Shlomo Sand has demonstrated in his book, The Invention of Jewish People, the Palestinians are the actual or nearest thing we have, the actual descendants of the Judean citizens. In other words, the, the ancient the ancient Jews is just a word meaning the inhabitants of Judea. I think that's what it meant. And um, those are actually the Semitic people of Palestine. And the Ashkenazis who come into Israel are, I would have thought, not Semitic by any standards. Um, so let's, let's try to use the word properly. It is, I'm glad you pointed out these two wars are both fundamentally genocide extermination programs. Um, it starts off with the uh, the um, attempt to uh, eradicate the, uh, the NATO-inspired attempt to eradicate East Ukraine uh, as an ancient Russian culture, uh, and uh, then you get the, in a way, more terrible um, happening in 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 Palestine. Um, what I think one needs to look at here in my opinion, it is the history, the totally fictional history that Israel is evoking as if it has a right to be there. I mean, Israel was a little mini-state in the 9th century uh, on the east side of the River Jordan. Above it was Galilee, below it was Judea, uh, and um, it existed for a couple of centuries, uh, Israel. Sometimes called Samaria, it might be more properly called Samaria. I, I tend to the view that Israel was more a people, a reference to people in ancient times, rather than a nation. Um, and the nation might have been called Samaria. OK. Um, and anyway, Israelis were quite strong and militaristic and they were wiped out forever in 722 BC by they challenged the might of the Assyrian Empire and got wiped out. And after that, there's records of Israeli um, uh, chariots and so on fighting in the Assyrian army uh, so so they didn't last but but Judea did last for a few centuries more Judea is down south west of the Dead Sea and it's from the descendants of Judea uh, that, that, that eventually um, Jerusalem became the capital of Judea uh, and the Bible stories started being written w within that culture a Judean culture um, so uh, I, I think it's of interest that Israel, if you look at the map, Israel claimed in 1948, um, they, they didn't claim the area west, it's called West Bank, west of, 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 sorry, west of River Jordan, which is where ancient Israel actually was. Um, they claimed a whole lot of area around the sea and that they, I don't know how they got a whole lot of area way down south into the Sinai Desert. But so so that there's no coherent reason why they should have had, had a right to have any of that property, any of that land. Um, I, don't, I don't think it had any, had any meaning. And when they keep claiming this greater Israel, they keep claiming God gave it to them, um, well, no, um, the, Israel, the greater Israel that David supposedly conquered from the Euphrates and Nile was simply the empire of Egypt. I think the world does need to sort this one out. From about the 15th century BC, the world's first empire, the Empire of Egypt, really did. Well, it really was a glorious, mighty empire from the Euphrates to the Nile. And um, 
around the 10th century, the alleged time of David and Solomon, uh, the whole of Canaan or Palestine was a district of that empire. It would have had Egyptian overlords there looking after the place. Um, so the, the concept that David once gained some um, great empire is complete fiction. He handed on to David to King Solomon, but all the research, very intensive, ever since the Jews got back to got to the Holy Land, excavating and looking desperately at any evidence of King Solomon, nothing whatsoever, not a peep. All the records and archives of kings and rulers around uh, the, the Middle East or East Mediterranean find no reference at all to Solomon. There's no trace of any evidence of Solomon's temple, no Solomon's gold, Solomon's arches, Solomon's horses. It's just a story. And it's a story, I would say, based on what they might have experienced from memories of glorious golden age of um, ancient Egypt. Uh, and that there really were temples in Egypt, you know, plated with gold glittering in the sun, uh, splendid, uh, splendid temples. And they imagined Solomon's temple uh, in, in that way. But there never was a Solomon's temple in Jerusalem. Absolutely not. Um, so there was no first temple. Jews can't build a third temple because the first one never existed. Uh, There's only one, really one um, temple, I would say, in, 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 uh, in ancient Jerusalem uh, a few centuries. Um, so I, I think the world needs to try and uh, accept what revisionist historians have been finding the last sort of uh, few decades, uh, consensus developing in this century, uh, of, of what really happened in the Holy Land. Uh, I mean, there was no great empire or power or capital city of Jerusalem in the 10th century. Um, uh, and uh, it was only centuries later that Jerusalem started to thrive and be a capital city. Um, and and there, that never, there never was a great empire of Israel. Um, so uh, so and, uh, where, where does this myth come from then and, and this effort to rebuild the temple, which is the basis of the uh, Jewish eschatology that's driving the most radical element among these genocidal uh, settler colonialists occupying Palestine. And, and a lot of, you know, nice people believe this. Like I had Duvid, who's well, a, well, a, came from, a Jewish guy on the show. Yeah. was um, uh, maybe, uh, maybe second century BC or a bit earlier if you want, uh, 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 national myths were being forged to, to hold the people together, to give them a sense of togetherness. And, the scriptwriters made a glorious past of this empire, and nobody had a memory. People's memories were scrambled by um, various past events, and nobody had a memory of what had actually happened then. So this glorious past was imagined uh, of, of a truly temple um, uh, and, and, and so forth. And I, I, I think uh, in the same way, for example, Brit Britons imagined that King Arthur was king of England. Uh, and uh, it's very hard to admit that uh, the historical records don't actually confirm that. That's the sort of glorious past image that some monarchs needed to uh, give them some, you know, give them some heritage that they like. So you're not telling us that, that Lancelot's uh, exploits with Guinevere were purely mythological, are you? Well, <laughs> a bit of a digression, but there was a king of Wales, there was King Arthur. So in South Wales... The fifth century, uh, I, I think that's where he belongs. So you can by all means have Guinevere and Lancelot there in South Out Wales, but um, it's not quite, um, you know, English mythology and um, 
all, all, all that. Right, um, right. So, so how did this mythology take on such a life of its own that you ended up with the Zionist movement, which is really primarily atheists who don't believe in God, but they do believe that God <laughs> gave them this land to come in and commit genocide and then take over. Yeah, and, yeah. And that, but you also have this eschatological extremist element that you can trace back to people like Shabtai Zvi, the self-declared uh, Antichrist Messiah or false Messiah, uh, whose career peaked in the year 1666. And these yeah. people, of course, all you know have this this whole uh, messianic uh, eschatological narrative that they're going to come in and, and create paradise on earth, or at least for the Jews, you know, by destroying or conquering all the other tribes and ruling right. the world from a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. Yeah. And then the Free yeah. Masonic movement is also obsessed with this project of rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem, which of course, yeah. would, and this rebuilding the temple project would mean destroying the Islamic world's oldest and greatest historical ar architectural monument, which is the Masjid al-Aqsa, the al yeah, well, the glorious, glorious Islamic mosque is on the Temple Mount, which was a Roman fortress, the 10th Legion, built by Hadrian, and it's got nothing whatever to do with the Jews. There was never any Jewish temple on that Temple Mount, which was built maybe first century BC for 10,000 Romans, the 10th Legion, to keep law and order in, in, in Jerusalem. Uh, and uh, that is what the temple is, is built on. Uh, and um, I think historians need to stop fantasizing about some Jewish temple there. The Jewish temples were never built on the highest part of a mountain. Uh, that, that just didn't happen, whereas Roman forts were always built on the highest part of any any land. There is a there is a site within the old wall city of Jerusalem where there would have been the original temple. But um, <clears throat> because of what happened in 70 AD, Jews totally forgot where it was. Now, what happened then? Well, um, that was the terrible massacre, the terrible war whereby Romans wiped out a million Jews uh, and reduced Jerusalem to rubble. Uh, and you could hardly know that there was once a, a great city there. Uh, and uh, so it was the most terrible thing. Uh, I mean, the Jews must have really annoyed the Romans to make that happen. Uh, and and uh, after that, there was no trace of where the temple was. OK. And by the way, that's what Jesus prophesied in, in the Bible, talking to his disciples. They're admiring this glorious temple, which Hadrian just done up and made it look really fine with white marble and everything. Um, and he said, look, uh, soon there'll be not one stone left on another. You won't better recognise the place. Uh, and um, so, if, if that was said, so th that actually happened. And the only thing left standing was the Temple Mount, the, the magnificent building. Uh, uh, and that is what the Wailing Wall that Jews pray through today. That is one side of the Temple Mount, the ancient Temple Mount. It's a big sort of square type, rectangular type thing, 36 acres. Uh, of a flat space, uh, and uh, the the Muslims are absolutely correct in saying that it's got nothing to do with the Jews. Uh, they didn't make it; their temple was never on it, and they should stop pretending that uh, they need to build Solomon's temple on it. Sorry, build their third temple on it. So they can't build a third temple because there never was a first one. But if they want to rebuild the temple, they should look back to a reasonable inferences which I think are available nowadays as to where the uh, temple was and I'll give them a clue it was near there has to be running water for a Jewish Jewish temple you must have running water for ablutions and there's the Gihon spring at the north sort of eastern part of the old city of Jerusalem and it has to be where the temple was 
uh, as being having running water accessible. I think, and there's various various visionary comments in the Old Testament about people like Ezekiel. He says he saw the temple and the spring of running water there. Um, various various historians talked about the spring of running water by the temple uh, before it was destroyed. So I think Jews need to um, get get a grip on the history that did actually happen. And they want to rebuild their temple, rebuild it where it actually was, which is by the spring, the Gihon Spring uh, in the old city. Yeah. Well, that makes sense to me. Uh, so do you think the people who have been pursuing this uh, Messianic millenarian uh, Jewish project uh, to rebuild the temple and conquer the Goyim tribes and, and rule the world from this rebuilt temple. That project's been around for centuries and the free Masonic movement seems to have been perhaps used by uh, Jewish forces to brainwash Christians. Well, first to turn them against Christianity and then yeah. to get them on board with this radical Jewish messianic project of conquering all of the non-Jewish tribes, subjugating them and having the Antichrist or the so-called Jewish Messiah rule them from this so-called rebuilt temple, which, as you say, is a pure fiction. So the question would be, you know, do the people the people who came up with this uh, project? Do you think that they knew that they were lying? Were they like neoconservatives? No, no, certainly, certainly not. But the, the perception that that temple never existed is only in recent decades. Let me emphasize this. The, the, the terrific archaeology came after the 67 war, and it took half a century of absolutely digging everywhere and endless claims, oh, we found Solomon's this, we found Solomon's that. Oh, no, no, sorry, no, it wasn't. Uh, half a century of intensive excavation had to go by before finally we start to get books. And by the way, I recommend anything by um, Israel Finkel, Finkelstein. He's a Hebrew professor. Uh, he spent a lifetime digging, looking for Solomon's Temple, so I'm not finding it. And now what he writes is very much worth reading. Also, Thomas Thompson, a, a excellent revisionist author, I, I think, like the Bible and history and the mythic past. Um, I think these books will tell you a, a bit of r real sense of what did actually exist. And that in 10th century, uh, alleged, uh, alleged rule by Solomon, it was just a little village that sold olives uh, and that's all. Um, uh, and there were, there were no kingdoms because there weren't enough people there. There'd been a prolonged drought for centuries called Marcinian drought. Uh, and uh, a whole lot of what used to be honest farmers had, had to abandon their farms and they became what's called Habiru. Habiru is a very disreputable term used for um, bandits and mercenaries for hire. Uh, that ended up as the word Hebrew. Um, and and uh, so there wasn't much, uh, there weren't enough people there to have kingdoms. There were no kings, and uh, uh, that persisted until the drought eased off around the ninth, ninth century, eighth century, uh, and uh, things started to flourish again. So um, I, I, I think it's terribly important for all of us that we get a real history. I mean, it is a very long history that Jews have got. I mean, you might want to say that Hebrew, Hebrew written language of Hebrew the Proto-Hebrew from about the 8th century BC is the longest lasting used alphabetic language. It, it might be. OK, uh, so it is a terrific long history, but let's not exaggerate it. Um, there was no great empire um, and Israel only lasted about 150 years. Um, and and uh, the, the glorious past fantasy that you got in books of the Old Testament is now very harmful indeed for planet Earth.
So where is this all going? Today, the United Nations voted on what looks like a, a watered-down resolution to supposedly get some uh, humanitarian aid into Gaza, where, where people are dying of thirst, dying of hunger, and then yeah. being, being bombed. The New York Times just revealed today uh, that what we all knew if we were watching Al Jazeera uh, months ago, which is that Israel has been ordering the Gazans into areas, telling them to you know, leave this area and here are the safe zones. So they go to the safe zones, and then Israel drops these 2,000-pound bombs on them, which are yeah. orders of magnitude larger than anything the Americans ever used in, in Fallujah or any place else. Uh, yeah. So it, it's uh, – but, but the – Well, I, I would just say, if I may, uh, from a historical point of view, the, the Old Testament, book after book, the Torah does tell – the Hebrews uh, gives them exterminate our neighbor philosophy, uh, wipe out his culture, you know, kill the men, rape the women, steal the gold, uh, take the land. Uh, that philosophy is given in book after book of the Old Testament. I think Christians have got a lot to answer for. But why do they want this stuff as sacred text? Uh, and uh, the nightmare vision which prophet Isaiah culminates in uh, after 60 chapters says, oh, um, all the kings of the world will come bearing gifts to Israel. Get the gates of my holy mountain Zion around Israel will always remain open. And any nation that doesn't offer gifts and riches to Israel will utterly perish. And um, that's a, a nightmare horror fantasy. And I think the world needs to wake up uh, and, and see that uh, allowing a group of people to enact these Old Testament fantasies is... Uh, is is basically unbearable for the rest of the human race, and and we need to um, uh, collectively stop doing it. And Christians need to stop believing that supporting this country will help whatever they think is going to happen, God to return or whatever. No, it won't. Well, these these people seem to be very good at uh, inflicting their bizarre fantasies on the world. And of course, we we have this story of. Jewish suffering culminating in the Holocaust that has, this has really become the new de facto religion in the West. The one thing you know, that you're not allowed to blaspheme about is, uh, is this Holocaust. And, you know, that's how you know what's really sacred, what the real religion is, is any, you know, if there's something that you can't blaspheme against in that culture, then that's what's sacred in that culture. That's the true religion of that culture. And in Western culture today, it seems that the Holocaust is more sacred than anything else. That's what gets you banned from, you know, from, from YouTube and Amazon and so on and so forth. Well, uh, tell me about it. Yeah. Tell yeah. Yeah. It. yeah. <laughs> in the New Testament, it does say, quote, do not believe the stories of the Jews. And I think any Christians should try to take that Christian attitude of not believing the stories of the Jews. And uh, not only the subject you just mentioned, but but also a whole lot of stories in, in, in the Old Testament. Um, and uh, book of uh, Jeremiah, he talks about the lying pen of the, of the scribes. Um, well, I think the lying pen of the scribes wrote quite a lot and uh, terrific fantasies about what the Hebrew people did that never happened. Um, and, and we need to try to get a focus on on, on real history and, uh, and and what has really happened in the past. Uh, otherwise, the ghosts and nightmares from the past will will ruin our, any prospects for a, a, a peaceful world. Uh, I, I think there's a real danger of that happening. Uh, and uh, this is where a sort of truthful dialogue is, is really the only way forward. So uh, how, how will that happen, though, in the wake of these 
traumatizing events where we have these these ancient you know, tribal feuds between the Khazars and the Rus, uh, and, and you know, religious feuds as well, of course, uh, you know, both ethnic and religious overlapping, uh, leading to the deaths of, of these huge numbers of people. Uh, and something, something similar and even more intense happening in Palestine. And so with all, all of this, uh, this, uh, trauma and suffering that's going to be, you know, going down through the generations, just like the Nakba, uh, is still remembered and contributes to the Palestinian resistance today. Uh, how, how do we get to a different world where these kinds of traumas don't continue to resonate and cause more and more suffering and more and more trauma? Well, I'm very flattered that you think I might be able to answer that, Kevin. I mean, I, I think you need people of different size to get together and have and share the pain, share, share our pain, share our anguish in the past, listen to our uh, the, the collective pain that each and the other has experienced. I mean, I go on these anti-war demos. It's wonderful going on marches with loads of Muslims. Uh, through London on, on a Saturday, protesting against this, and the great chant is, uh, "From the river to the sea, uh, you know, Palestine will, will be free." Now that, that'll get uh, you kicked off of X. Um, and that simply means it's a plea for democracy, one man, one vote. We want to see throughout Palestine, one man, one vote. And sure, Israel can exist as a, as a district or re a region or whatever, but not as a nation. Uh, uh, that's that's my view. That uh, that. Uh, we, we need the nation of Palestine to get together. I, I think the different, the, especially young people on both sides, would, would be able to get on together. And, and, and uh, the, the, the nightmare horror vision of, of a nation of Israel enacting Old Testament fantasies, uh, the world has got to exercise that somehow. Uh, I, I mean, it, it's, uh, if people think it's some sacred prophecy, uh, just think again. Just realise how horrifically wrong you 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 you, you were. That um, um, that um, that uh, if if the left to go on enacting these fantasies, I mean, they want to build this temple, which will, according to their own rules, have endless flow of animal blood, sacrifice blood. I mean, that's just a nightmare. Uh, and and uh, it it, uh, it shouldn't be part of any world we want to live in. Um, uh, and uh, if, if if Jews in Israel go on us, they will just get more and more paranoid and they'll claim not to understand why all the world hates them. Um, uh, and it'll just get worse and worse. Well, uh, one positive development is that the younger people seem to be uh, very much more aware of what's of the reality of this issue than the older people. And uh, I, I was you know, shocked to see these recent polls showing that the, the majority of 18 through 24 year olds in the United States want uh, all of what Israel ended and all of Palestine turned over to the Palestinian resistance, including Hamas. Now that, that's a pretty radical break from the propaganda that they're being yeah. fed. Uh, Imagine, so yeah. I don't know if it's social media or, or what it is. I had, I had kind of given up on this generation after you know, COVID and, and I'm, I'm not a huge fan of, of some of the, you know, normalizing, of uh, of these kinds of sort of you know, sexual identity issues that you know strike me as as fine as long as you kind of you know admit that they're marginal, but you try to force them on everybody and make them normal. So anyway, the, the whole this whole you know Gen Z or whatever the latest generation is was you know had me scratching my head for a while, but they seem to understand Palestine uh, much better than their elders. 
Yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, I mean, I, I would favour the old-fashioned post-war uh, judgment that Jerusalem should be shared out equally amongst the three monotheistic religions. Uh, and I, I think that was a well-balanced judgment. And um, let's try to keep it that way. And for God's sake, don't give it over to the Jews. Um, and... Okay, that, that, that's probably a good place to leave it because the bumper music is playing. So thank you, Nick Collarstrom. Appreciate your great work, uh, your <laughs> books on high, red pill subjects. Keep up the great work. Okay, Kevin. Right. All right, take care. See you then. Yeah, bye. Yeah, bye-bye. That's Nick Collarstrom. I'm uh, Kevin Barrett back in the next hour with Swami Beyond Ananda of WakeUpLaughing.com to try and... Look at the, the lighter side of the dark developments in today's world. Stick around. <laughs> <laughs>